Well, today we begin a new season in the church calendar. Uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent. Wow, it was a rousing, exciting endorsement of the first Sunday of Advent. Yeah, so happy, yeah, happy New Year. This is the beginning of the church year. Did you know that? Advent starts the church year. A little bit weird, but that's cool. You know, you may be asking yourself, you know, we talk about Advent, and I see that Father Caleb's changed his shoelaces, and I see that there's purple, and we got a, a wreath over here. Great. But what is Advent anyway? That's a really good question. I'm glad that you asked it. In her book, Worshiping Without Words, Patricia Klein explains Advent to be a period of preparation for the coming of the Lord at Christmas and at the end of time. And so we understand Advent to be exactly that, the season of preparation, the season of waiting, the season of getting ready. We all understand what this means in, in terms of preparation because we all prepare for Christmas. Some of us prepare far more greatly and widely for Christmas than others of us, but we all make preparation for Christmas, right? We, we put up the Christmas tree, we wrap our gifts, we, some of us will uh, decorate our houses like Clark Griswold from uh, the Christmas vacation movies, uh, you know, the nuclear power plant has to throw the switch and the lights come on. We all make preparation, so uh, we know what it means to make preparation. Advent, however, is primarily about making spiritual preparation for the coming of the king. It's the season of, of preparation for the celebration of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God in history uh, as he is born Jesus the Christ and as we prepare for his first coming, to celebrate his first coming, to remember his first coming, we also realize that just as surely as he came once, so he is coming again, and preparation must be made. This is the time enclosed between Jesus' two advents, time in which God is at work. It's important for us to recognize that, like at all times of the year, God wants to do something in us. God wants to do something for us as individuals and as a church. During Advent, we hear specific voices from Scripture calling us to awareness, calling us to wakefulness, calling us to prepare. We hear from John the Baptist. We hear from Mary. We hear the repeated message, and sometimes in a whisper, sometimes in a shout, He is coming. So get ready. And this morning, we hear from Jesus himself in our, our reading from the gospel according to St. Mark. Jesus calls those who believe in him to wait and prepare for his return. If you have your Bibles, keep them open to Mark chapter 13. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time together this morning, starting at verse 24. Now, our gospel reading from Mark chapter 13 uh, starting at verse 24 and running through to the end of the chapter, is in the uh, context of a wider conversation that Jesus has been having with his disciples. It begins all the way back at the very first verses of Mark chapter 13, and in that context, Jesus' disciples had been admiring, admiring the magnificence of the temple in Jerusalem. 
how great this building is, how amazing this building is, how beautiful it is. And Jesus almost casually remarks that the temple will be destroyed. <laughs> I'm just excited that I was, getting, I was being informed who is the, uh, the punter for the Oakland Raiders. That was awesome. So Jesus almost casually says, you think this, this building is magnificent, that's great, but it's going to be destroyed. And then later in private, Peter, James, and John with Andrew go to Jesus and say, hey, listen, you just said something pretty amazing, pretty catastrophic and cataclysmic. When is that going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And, and Jesus, in the rest of chapter 13, he begins to unfold two events, the destruction of the temple and his personal return, and he, uh, he unfolds those things which can be seen with our eyes that are both signs of the coming event and signs that are not of the coming event. It's a little confusing, I know. When he came to our reading, when we come to our reading for this morning, Jesus has turned to address his return. And listen again to what he says. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So let's notice something here. Uh, the, the events or the, the signs that Jesus' return is imminent are these cataclysmic events within the heavenlies. The sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, and stars will be falling from the sky. And that's when, that's when we should know this, the, the king is coming, the son of man is returning. For us, it's not important to, to try to, uh, as we've seen, to try to predict or uh, figure out exactly when that's going to happen. For us, what is really, really important is a couple of things that Jesus hits upon. And the first thing is, Jesus treats his return as an absolute certainty. And so should we. This isn't Jesus saying, maybe, maybe this will happen, and when you see these things happen, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll come back. This isn't what Jesus is saying at all. There isn't a hint of doubt. There isn't a hint of a question. Jesus proclaims he will return. After the temple is destroyed, he will return after the darkening of the sun and the moon. He will return after the cataclysmic events in the skies. And he will return in a public and visible way as the Son of Man to judge and to rule over his kingdom. So we need to treat, folks, the return of Jesus as an absolute certainty because Jesus did. And the rest of the New Testament did. How many times in Paul's letters, how many times in Peter's letters, how many times in John's letters the, the, is the return of Jesus referred to as an absolute certain event? Not because they made it up, but because they heard it from Jesus' mouth. He is coming, and he's coming again. St. Augustine once remarked, the first coming of Christ the Lord, God's Son and our God, was in obscurity. The second will be in the sight of the whole world. When he came in obscurity, no one recognized him but his own servants. When he comes openly, he will be known by both good people and bad. When he came in obscurity, it was to be judged 
When he comes openly, it will be to judge. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in Mark chapter 13. His coming as the Son of Man with great power and great authority to judge. And his use of that phrase, Son of Man, is theologically loaded. If you uh, stick a finger in Mark chapter 13, uh, turn to your left and go to Daniel chapter 7. Keep a finger, and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm assuming that we all have paper Bibles this morning. If you have a, if you have a, uh, if you have your app open, go ahead and Daniel chapter seven, specifically verse thirteen. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man quite often, and I'm tempted to say that he refers to himself as the Son of Man more frequently than any other title. It is a theologically loaded term. Found first in Daniel. Chapter 7, beginning at verse 13, the prophet Daniel has a vision from God. And this is what he records. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This past past spring, as we observed the ascension of Jesus, after he was crucified and was resurrected and he spent 40 days with his uh, disciples teaching them, they then saw him ascend into heaven. And what I think that Daniel sees in Daniel 7, starting at verse 13, is Jesus' ascension of Acts chapter 1. Daniel saw Jesus ascended into heaven to receive enthronement at the right hand of God to rule and to reign as the cosmic king. So to say that Jesus is the cosmic king is to say that he is the son of man of Daniel 7, that he has, Jesus has, an everlasting kingdom that is made up of all peoples, nations, and languages. And so Jesus ascended to his place at the right hand of God. He was enthroned as the cosmic king, the ruler of the universe. He is seated on high above every rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so as Daniel saw the Son of Man rise upon a cloud, into the presence of the Ancient of Days. So the apostles saw Jesus rise upon a cloud at his ascension and heard an angel say, This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will return. He will enter once again into time and history as the Son of Man, the enthroned cosmic king, and he will consummate his everlasting dominion and his kingdom that shall not be destroyed. What we see in Scripture is that Jesus is seated as the cosmic king, waiting until the time when he can return that his enemies may be made his footstool. Where we are now is in this in-between time, a time of already, a time of not yet, in which Jesus has ascended into heaven, in which Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, in which Jesus is ruling while awaiting the time of his coming as judge. And make no mistake about it, 
We need to treat Jesus coming again as a certainty because Jesus does as well. What are we to do and how then should we live? Jesus' return is a certainty and waiting for him to return, his people are to be about preparation. When Jesus was discussing his return with Peter, James, John, and Andrew in Mark 13, his wider point isn't to be found in a prediction of the timing. Rather, his point is to be found in the truth that he is coming and in his command for his followers to be prepared for his coming. And so he tells a few parables to drive this point home. In Mark 13, verses 28 through 31, he uses the parable of the fig trees. Pay attention to what's happening and get ready. Uh, Be ready. Watch the signs of the times. In verses 34 through 37, Jesus tells the parable about a, a master who leaves on a journey. The servants are to be prepared every day at every moment for his return. So it is for those believers in Jesus who are alive in this time of in between. We're called to wait for his return and prepare for it. Now, as poet and philosopher The Floridian Tom Petty once sang, (laughs) waiting is the hardest part. The season of Advent and the ideas of waiting and preparation go hand in hand. And I think we need to be clear here, waiting does not mean doing nothing. Waiting and preparing are actually the exact opposite of that idea of doing nothing. Just think about how we wait for big events in our lives and how we prepare for something amazing and important. What does a soon-to-be bride and her family and her friends do while they await the day of marriage? There's dresses to try on, to buy. There are invitations to be sent out. There are cakes to be tasted and chosen. There are decorations. There are flowers. There are colors. That's active waiting. That's preparation. And think about what a pregnant mother and an expectant father do as they await labor. There's a crib to be put together. There's a nursery to be painted. There's diapers to be stockpiled. That's active preparation. That's active waiting. You know, think about what, uh, well, think about what uh, a college football team does to prepare for the next season. If you're like Florida State and Tennessee, you have to, in Florida, you've got to find the new coach. There are new coaches to be hired. There are new players to be recruited, new players to be evaluated, new schemes, new plays to be developed. That's active participation, active waiting. So all of these things are done during the time of waiting so that when the event arrives, those who have awaited and prepared are ready to get married, bring a baby home, or win games. And so it is with believers who await the coming of Jesus. That's why he told the parable of the virgins and the oil. That's why he told the parable of the talents and the servants. Because the time between his going and his coming is a time of active preparation in the midst of waiting. And this is something that we have to remember. While Jesus' coming is certain, it is delayed. But while it is delayed, he is still active and still present amongst us. I found this statement by Patricia Klein to be a very important reminder, especially as we enter into Advent. Time, she writes, 
which is now enclosed between the two advents of Christ, his first coming in humility and obscurity and his second coming in majesty and power, has been claimed by God for his own. Time is to be sanctified like everything else by the presence and the action of Christ. And so while we await Jesus' physical and visible Advent, his second coming, we prepare by welcoming Jesus into our lives here and now as Jesus is now present and active amongst us. Scholar and theologian Robert Weber put it this way, Advent is a time when we ask, even plead with God not to leave us alone. In Advent, we celebrate the beginning and the ending of Christ's victory over the powers of evil, and we call upon God to accomplish that victory in our own lives, to break in on us, to be born in our hearts, to create us anew. Jesus calls those who believe in him to wait and to prepare for his return. It's all well and good to talk about waiting and preparing, but in very practical ways, what does that actually look like? First, we recognize the color of the season. The color of Advent, like Lent, is purple. Purple is the color that symbolizes penitence and mourning and is only used during these two penitential seasons. And so a huge part of preparation for the coming of Jesus is repentance. A huge part of preparation for Jesus' coming is repentance, of turning away from sin and turning towards Jesus for forgiveness, life, and cleansing. It's in repentance that we recognize those things which distract us and pull us away from Jesus, and we turn away from them. In in repentance, we we recognize our sins against God and against our neighbor. We recognize the things we have done and the things we have left undone as we confess. It might be, and it is, painful, but the work of repentance is absolutely necessary for preparation. And in coming weeks, as we'll see, when John the Baptist emerged, another voice of Advent, what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Second, with preparation, uh, the preparation of repentance, comes this. Casting away our sins and those things which distract us leaves sort of a hole in us. And so we seek then to replace those things with the things of Jesus. So as we prayed this morning in our collect, Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. The preparation is getting rid of some stuff, but not leaving that space empty. Preparation is getting rid of that stuff and welcoming Jesus and his presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to come in, to fill those places, to flesh them out, as our collect says, to put upon us the armor of light. So we ask for Jesus to bless us with the Holy Spirit, to fill those empty spaces left behind by the things cast away, that Jesus might be formed 
here in us. And finally, we prepare repentance and replacement, but we prepare for the coming of Jesus by participating in his kingdom proclamation. Sometimes we ask the question, why are you taking so long, O Lord? Why are you slow to come? I think one answer is found in St. Peter's second letter, the third chapter. He says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think there's a real truth to the idea that Jesus' delay in his return is God's grace to people, that they may hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, repent of their sins, turn towards Christ, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus has promised that he will return, and it's a certainty. Indeed, he will return, but there is this delay, a delay for the very purpose of gospel proclamation that others may believe in Jesus and rejoice instead of weep at his coming. So believers in Jesus have a marvelous opportunity. And so it is, waiting and preparing, believers in Jesus are called to speak the gospel to those who do not yet know him. We are called to pray for those who do not yet know him. We are called to love those who do not yet know him. Why? So that we may be made much of? Absolutely not. That they may know repentance that leads unto life. So this season, as we wait and as we prepare, let's do exactly that. Let's pray for those we know and love who do not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let's pray for an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, to speak truth to them as we love them. Because, folks, Jesus is coming. He doesn't want, I don't believe, he doesn't want those who he finds unprepared. He wants to find us prepared. In Advent, we are, uh, man, I said that really stupidly. In Advent, we are to wait and to prepare. Jesus calls those who believe in him to wait and prepare for his return, repentance, replacement, and proclamation. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.